welcome. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. I know this, not having the sermon bumper three for a loop, didn't it? If you were wondering what was going on. Right. Let me tell you what's happened in the next few weeks, okay? Obviously, I'm preaching today. Pastor David will be back with us next week on the 15th. Then on the 22nd, Dr. Robert Smith, who is a preaching professor at Beeson Divinity School, is going to be here leading us in worship that Sunday. And then on April 29th through June 3rd, it's going to be all Pastor David, okay? This is his last hurrah. Everybody realizes on June 3rd he's retiring, okay? Now, we're not happy about that, but I'm just letting you know because I want to make sure that you mark it down that you want to be here these last five or six weeks, okay? Because he can pretty much say whatever he wants and he's not going to get fired at this point, okay? <laughs> it's every preacher's dream to not have to worry about what's going to be said about you on Monday. And on June 4th, it doesn't matter anymore, okay? So it's going to still be biblical. I'm not saying he's going to go off the deep end, but he doesn't have to worry about the critics anymore. So these last five or six weeks are going to be authentic David Crosby, okay? You know, he's always authentic, okay? But, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're in the year of our 300th anniversary as a city, right? From 1718 to 2018. Think of the amount of history that that encapsulates. So I started thinking this week, what are some unique things about the city that I was not aware of. Okay, I've been here almost nine years now, not anywhere close to 300 years. Here's a couple things I didn't know. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was a major player in the civil rights movement, while headquartered in Atlanta, was actually formed here. Didn't know that. Many of you that are from here probably knew that. I didn't know that, okay? They had breakfast one morning, and it was formed right here in New Orleans. Did you know no other city in the entire country has more historic districts than New Orleans? We lead the country in over 20 historic districts. Nobody else has any more than that. Also, I had a church member a few weeks ago tell me that there's no need for me to travel the world because when you live in New Orleans, the world travels to you. And I like that. I thought that was pretty cool. Okay, so we are in a melting pot of cultures and ethnic groups and different religious beliefs, and it is a wonderful place to live. Amen? So this morning, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, talking about a man who wanted to transform the city that he lived in. So every one of you in this room, whether you're here for one year or you're here for 50 years, okay, God has planted you here for a reason. And it's to transform the city in which you live. So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, all right? It's been a while since we've been in the Old Testament. Starting in verse 1, here we go. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, 
What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision." And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So we need some background information about what's happening here, okay? At this point in time, the Israelites are not in Jerusalem, because a really mean world power called the Babylonians came in. In 586 B.C., long, long time ago, okay? Everybody knows who King Nebuchadnezzar is, right? He's famous. He came in and he destroyed Jerusalem. And he destroyed the temple. And he took all the Israelites in Jerusalem. 
and he sent them out to Babylon. So the Israelites are living now in exile, away from their homeland. Well, later, the Persians come in and defeat the Babylonians. So in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah is serving at the privilege of the Persian government. They have taken over now. They are the ones in control. So we pick up around the middle of the 4th century B.C., or 5th century B.C., okay? Right around 450, long time ago. And Nehemiah is a cupbearer. So he tastes the wine before he gives it to the king. Because if you know anything about kings in the old days, there are a lot of people that wanted to kill him. So we don't want to get our king poisoned, so we're going to let Nehemiah taste the wine to make sure that it's good to give the king. So this is where we're at in the history of Israel. They are away from their homeland, serving at the privilege of the Persians. And Nehemiah, in this text this morning, gives us five principles to practice if we're going to be a part of transforming the city where we live. I don't care if you're going to be here three months, six months, one year, or 50 years. God has planted you here, and as long as you were here, you should be a part of transforming the city where you live. So here we go. Here's the first principle. Number one... You have to, absolutely have to ask yourself this question. What breaks your heart? Or what excites you? Now when the king looks at Nehemiah, he notices that there's something off about him. As a cupbearer, typically you were a well-fit individual. Nehemiah was probably physically fit. He was probably a good-looking fellow. But on this particular day, there is something off about Nehemiah. And it's written all over his face. And the king notices that something inside Nehemiah is off. His heart is breaking over something. So, think about it for a moment. What breaks your heart about living in this city? All right? Now, somebody brought this up to me early this morning. Let me specify what I mean by that. I don't mean that, you know, if you show up at a nice restaurant and they're out of crawfish... Okay, that doesn't count. Okay? We're not talking about superficial things that might break your heart or if you're out of town both weekends of Jazz Fest or something like that. We're talking about legitimate things okay, that break your heart. So whether it be uh, the foster care system in our city, whether it be crime, whether it be educational inequality, whatever it might be, the potholes, okay? there's something here that you're unsatisfied with. That's one question to ask yourself. But another thing to ask yourself is, what excites you about the city that you live in? Because before you're going to undergo any type of transformation, you need to ask yourself these questions. Where do I see something that's off, and how can I be a part of what God is doing to fix it? So Nehemiah is serving at the privilege of Artaxerxes, but his heart still is back in Jerusalem, where his family was from. And the devastation of the home that his fathers and his grandfathers lived in was bothering him. Now many of you in this room can actually identify with Nehemiah here. Because in August 2005, something happened to many of you and you were literally exiled away from this place for a certain period of time. Whether it be a week, a couple of months, two years, five years. 
And many of you came back to this city for the very purpose of rebuilding it, of transforming it. So you get what Nehemiah is going through here. Being away from the place that you love, but your heart still being in another location. So ask yourself that question. What is it that breaks your heart? And number two, what excites you about the city in which you live? Whether it be New Orleans or whether you move on to somewhere else. You know, there was a park today in New York City called Highline. If any of you have ever been to New York City, you might have been to this park. In the 1930s, it served as a rail line to transport goods from one part of the city to the other part of the city. Okay? In the early 1980s, it shut down. It stopped running. And there was a group of real estate developers who wanted to come in and destroy the rail line and put up some nice pretty properties. But there was one man who fought it in court and kept that abandoned rail line open. Fast forward about 20 years, and in 1999, two other men came along. They looked at this abandoned rail line, and they said, you know what? We see a future here. We see a park that can span from one part of the city to the next, and people can walk it, and there'll be food trucks, and there'll be wildlife. I want to give you a picture of the before and after, okay? So before this was built, it was just overgrown weeds. You can see the rail line right there. When they completed this project in 2014, here's what it looks like today. An incredible park that spans the entire city. We actually have a group from our church in New York City right now. And I'm wondering if they're going to check it out. If you ever go up there, you should check it out. Highline Park is what it's called. Now, there's no spiritual significance to this park. But a few men had a vision for making the city where they lived better. And that's the result of it. So you have to ask yourself before you do anything else those questions. Number two, after you've answered that question, you have to pray. Now this seems obvious, but in Nehemiah chapter 1, we have Nehemiah's entire prayer to the Lord about what's on his heart, about the burden that he feels. You see, what we want to do is, once we think we've established what it is that breaks our heart or what excites us, the human tendency is to immediately get to work, immediately start solving the problem. But what we find Nehemiah doing here is once he gets permission from Artaxerxes, he stops and he prays. And here's why this step is so important. Because it allows us to process the decision that we think God has placed On our heart. Because the last thing we want to do is get an idea about transforming where we live and not have God in it. Now, we could still do great things. This railroad park, it happened, as far as I know, apart from God being involved. So there are still great things that can happen. But when we do things without God's blessing, we are robbing its potential. So you want to process your decision in prayer. You want to gather a group of people around you and you want to begin praying for what you think it is that God is laying on your heart to do. There are certain things that the church of Jesus Christ is equipped to do 
that other organizations are not. And there are other organizations that can do things that we're not equipped to do. Let me give you an example. In this city today, there is an organization called Operation Spark. Any of you heard of it? What they do is they take teenagers, mostly from at-risk locations, after they graduate high school, they take them through an eight-week program, a boot camp, they call it, where they teach them how to do coding, computer coding. And once that boot camp is over, they transition them from that class into a job. I don't think I have to tell you that technology and coding and computer jobs are at a premium right now. It's a great industry to get into. Okay? So kids who otherwise would have no opportunity maybe to go to college or to get a job where they can be financially independent are getting opportunities to do so through this organization. Now, we're not equipped to do that. We don't have thousands of programmers in this room. We don't have the type of computer equipment needed to run that. Okay? But there are other things that we are equipped to do that Operation Spark is not. And so as we bathe whatever it is God has laid on our heart in prayer, he reveals to us what it is exactly he wants us to do. So you got to ask yourself, what breaks your heart or what excites you? Then you got to pray about it. Okay? Then you have to gather a team. Notice what happens to Nehemiah. He gets permission, and he immediately asks King Artaxerxes for help. He asks him for letters. Because the Persians control the world at this point. There's no way Nehemiah is getting from Persia to Jerusalem without the approval of Artaxerxes. He needs letters because as he goes to each province, he's going to have somebody stop him and say, who gives you the right to do this? Well, he can pull out that letter and say, the king gives me the right to do this. And then if you're going to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, which is what God has called him to do, guess what you have to have? You've got to have wood. So he sends a letter to the man who manages the king's forest for wood so that he can rebuild the walls. There's a great book, business book, written a long time ago by John Cotter called Leading Change. Okay, One of the most famous books ever written on change. It's an eight-step process when you want to establish change in any organization. You know what the second step is in the process in that book? It's developing a guiding coalition, which is just a fancy way of saying you need a team of people around you. Nehemiah could not accomplish this task without the king, without some other people around him who could encourage him, who could support him financially, who could hold him accountable, who could tell him, you know what, this is a bad idea. Or you know what, this is exactly what we need to be doing. You have to have a team of people around you. It's very difficult to do great things for God in isolation. The church was not designed to be done individually. One of the greatest strengths of the church is its people, and one of the greatest strengths of people 
is the church. So you got to gather a team. Nehemiah gathers up these people in God's providence, in God's plan. Nehemiah just happened to have the greatest possible ally in helping him accomplish his task. It's no accident that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. Somebody that would have been at the king's side most of the day. This happens in God's providence. This is ordained by God for Nehemiah to do this. So maybe in your heart you're wrestling with what it is that God wants you to do. Maybe you've never even thought about how you were called to transform the city. But you better gather a team of people around you. Because it's going to be very difficult to do in isolation. Fourth thing we see Nehemiah doing. He assesses the need. Verse 12 takes us to a spot where we see Nehemiah taking a group of men. And you know what they start doing? They start walking around the city. They start visiting all these different gates. They're walking. And they're visualizing. And they're wondering what it is that God is going to accomplish through them. You've got to get your boots on the ground where it is that you want to do ministry. And when you're walking, when you're gathering data, when you're studying the demographics, when you're talking to individuals that live in the specific area where you want to do ministry, you pick up on things. And God speaks to you. One of the great things that our inward ministry does is they go prayer walking on a regular basis in the areas where they do ministry. They're not up here on the third floor in some ivory tower praying for the people in the quarter. They're going there, okay? Walking around the clubs, going into the clubs, praying for people, okay? You've got to be willing to go to the area where you feel like God is calling you to go. You have to assess the need, not from a distance, but with your boots on the ground. Jeffrey Canada started the Harlem Children's Zone in 1997. There's a picture of him. You're going to see it in a moment. And he started on one block in Harlem. And you know what he saw on that block? He saw crumbling apartment buildings, chronic illness, rampant drug use, broken families, and failing schools. That's what he saw as he walked around the neighborhood. And his whole idea was to transform this one block in Harlem, New York. Well, that was in 1997. Today, over 100 blocks of Harlem have been transformed by this man's idea to change one block. Over 860 students have graduated college since the program began. Over 1,200 families have remained intact since he developed a family support center that helped families who were struggling. And in 2017, 1.2 million meals were packed to send to children as they went to school each day to ensure that they could get a healthy lunch. Now all these stats sound really impressive. 
But don't miss it. Canada's vision started with one block. I'm not asking you to take the whole city of New Orleans on your own. I'm asking you to make the difference in one individual, in one family, in one school, or one neighborhood. It is God that provides the resources and the ideas for us transforming an entire city. We can't do it alone. You don't have to be a multi-million dollar organization to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish while you are here. You don't need those things. You have the Spirit of God residing in your heart. And you have the power through Jesus Christ to make changes where you live. So, what breaks your heart? You pray, okay? You gather a team, you assess the need, and then you respond in faith. If you go home and, or this week and you want to read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you'll pick up more about this. But Nehemiah and his friends, they respond in faith to what God had called them to do. And he blessed their effort. And the burden that was on their heart went away. And they were able to build. I love this quote from Richard Dawkins, well-known atheist in our day today. This is what he says. He says, there are no Christians, as far as I know, blowing up buildings. I'm not aware of any Christian suicide bombers. I'm not aware of any major Christian denomination that believes the penalty for apostasy is death. And this is a man who laughs at the concept of God, who has led many, many people into the belief that there is no God. But when he looks at the church of Jesus Christ, even though he thinks our beliefs in God are silly, you know what he sees? L-O-V-E. Even people that don't believe in God should be able to look at the church of Jesus Christ in the world and say, there is something radical about the way they do life. So there's two types of people in this room this morning. Right? There are those of you that agree with everything I said. You're already involved in a ministry. You just are amen in me and you, you affirm everything I said. Okay? So these steps for you are just a reminder to reflect on as you go about your ministry, whatever it is God's called you to do. But then there's a group of you in this room who think, you know what? I'm only going to be here a year or two years or four years. I really don't need or have the time to invest in the city that I live in. And I would tell you that you're flat out wrong. As nice as I can possibly say it. Here's a quote that I learned a few weeks ago, and actually a few months ago now. It's from a guy that you don't want to hear his name because y'all don't like him. And uh, you can figure out who I'm talking about probably. But here's what he says. He says, be where your feet are. 
So look down right now, everybody in the room. Where are your feet? They're right here. So don't focus on five years down the road, ten years down the road. Focus on where you are right now. And begin transforming the neighborhood, the city in which you live. You don't have to wait. You might only be here a year or two years. That's all right. How can God use you while you're here? I firmly believe that the church of Jesus Christ in this city can transform the place which we live. Not in our own power. If we think that the gospel is only for those of us in this room and only talks about personal salvation, we have missed the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not just about personal transformation. It is about human flourishing in every avenue of your life. Work, home, hobby, sport. The gospel should be an overflow of every part of our life. So, ask yourself these questions. And if God has laid something on your heart, I would suggest that you get to work being obedient to what he's called you to do. Just like Nehemiah, be a part of what God is doing in the city. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we feel so blessed to live in a place that you have called us to. And God, there are people in this city and in every city in the world that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that salvation comes through Jesus. But it doesn't need to just stop there. It needs to spill over into the way we treat our neighbors, the way we act at work, So, Lord, I pray that you would put a burden on our heart, like you did Nehemiah, to transform the city in which we live. God, we can't do it alone. Your spirit must be involved. So give us wisdom. Give us strength to accomplish what it is you want us to do. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.